0: Jesus was sitting on the Mount of Olives when his disciples came to him and asked him, what will be the sign of your coming? And instead of a date or an exact checklist, Jesus gave them a description of the future that was to come. He gave them warnings to heed about the temptations his people would face. And he gave them examples to follow to teach them how they should wait. He taught them that the Son of Man will arrive unexpectedly that he will return in surprising glory at a time that nobody is able to predict. Like a servant who doesn't know when his master will be back to check on him, like a sheep who doesn't know when the shepherd will return, Jesus told his disciples that we can't prepare for him to return at a certain time. Instead, he instructed them to be ready for his return at all times. Our Savior made a promise. The dawn is coming, and our teacher gave us a warning. Are you ready?
1: Well, it's good to see you guys all this morning. Uh, It's an awesome opportunity to be here in the house of God, which is a house of prayer, a house of teaching, but it's also a gathering of Those who are part of the family of God. My name is Tony. I'm pastor here. We've been doing a series out of uh, Matthew chapter 24 and 25. It's also found in Luke 21. It's the Olivet Discourse. And uh, and this is a a response. This is a message from Jesus in response to a couple of questions. Uh, So Jesus has come into Jerusalem. This is the week he's going to be crucified. He's going to also resurrect from the dead on that third day. But earlier in that week, he has a sit down with all of the religious leaders of the day. And he's talking through a lot of different scriptures. There was, there was intense debate. And they were not agreeing with Jesus. In fact, they were infuriated by him. And then he makes a comment about the temple, that it will be destroyed. And so... What ends up happening is that as they're leaving the temple that day, and this was likely on Tuesday, the week of his, uh, again, uh, the Holy Week, so the week he was crucified. So he's walking out uh, of the city of Jerusalem, and the disciples were kind of troubled by this whole thought that the temple's going to be destroyed, that they look back and say, Jesus, aren't these buildings beautiful? And Jesus says, not a single stone will be left unturned. That was troubling because they had, in their lifetime, that temple had been reconstructed and and this was a beautiful thing and, and it was part of the pride of their nation and it was also the place where God's presence was interfacing with man and so to see, to hear Jesus say that was horrifying to them and so it logically led to questions and they asked two. The first question was, when will this happen? When will the temple of Jerusalem be destroyed? And secondly, what will be the signs of your coming in the end of time? That was the question that they had asked. And that required a lengthy answer. And, and, and so what you have now is the Olivet Discourse that he shares the answer to when Jerusalem is going to be destroyed and when He's coming back. So I'm going to ask you to turn your Bibles now to Matthew chapter 24 as we continue in on this. And if you need a Bible, our ushers are coming up the aisles right now and we'd be glad to provide you one. Or you can go to the Version app, uh, which is a Bible app. And if you go into the Version app, look up the events tab. If you go click on that, you'll see LEFC is one of the churches listed there. Tap on that and you'll get all the scriptures we'll be using this morning. So as you're kind of going there, we're going to be in two passages today, Matthew 24 and Revelation 19, and, uh, and I, to get there, I feel like I need to help us lean in a little bit more to the text uh, and, and appreciate the details by sharing and bringing back to our memory of what happened with Thomas after the resurrection, so Thomas being one of the twelve disciples, I uh, was encountering Jesus. Well, I hadn't yet encountered Jesus, the resurrected Savior yet. But most of the other disciples had. And they're telling Thomas, you're not going to believe this. We actually saw Jesus. He's risen from the dead. And what did Thomas say? He's like, unless I can put my finger where those spikes were in his hand, and unless I can put my hand into his side where that spear had pierced, I'm not going to believe. I'm not going to believe. The question I've always had now, we, there's no questioning about Thomas's true sincere faith because it was Thomas that actually, after he Jesus uh, shows himself to Thomas, Thomas went further away from Jerusalem to share the gospel than any of the other twelve. So he was a man of faith, but for some reason he could not accept what had just happened to Jesus, his death, and then ultimately his resurrection. So we have to ask ourselves, why is that the case? When Jesus multiple times, before they even came into Jerusalem that week, Jesus said to them, I've got to go to Jerusalem to die. But don't worry, I'm going to raise from the dead on the third day. He told them that bluntly. Then they go through that week. He says multiple times while they're in Jerusalem, I've come here to die, but I'll raise again on the third day. So there was no mystery to the disciples that were there. But none of them were prepared for the horrific death that he was going to experience. I think it traumatized them. And then when that day happens, that third morning, and, and, and the, the women had gone to the tomb, and they see that it's empty, and they'd been met by a messenger and was told that he is no longer there, he is risen. It was the disciples, some of those disciples were immediately like, could it be? Has it actually happened? happened. And so they're remembering what Jesus had said, but not Thomas. He required a physical experience to see him. And you have to ask yourself, why did Thomas doubt to that level? And I would like to suggest that the reason why Thomas needed a little bit more evidence to be able to trust in this story of Jesus being resurrected from the dead is because Thomas struggled with his own presuppositions. What I mean by that is keep in mind all these disciples had grown up under the teachings of the Pharisees and the Sadducees and they were told that when the Messiah comes he is going to de- to liberate them from Rome. He is going to be a conquering earthly general and Messiah. He's going to lead the nation be- bring it back to prominence and they're going to defeat their enemies. So anything that Jesus would share that would be different from that, it would be hard for the ears of the listener to get past their presuppositions. After all, the Pharisees had audience with Jesus over and over and over again. And yet every time they held to the presupposition, they couldn't hear with their ears what Jesus was telling them with power and authority. Some of them did, but not all of them. And for Thomas, he was too traumatized, wasn't able to look past and remember the details. He's going to die and he's going to raise again on the third day. It had truly fallen upon deaf ears for him. So he needed to be proven wrong and then we know Jesus has that encounter and and faith became sight. (laughs) And so it's like it was something to behold, I'm sure. But Thomas truly then became a sold-out follower of Jesus. Why do I share that story now? I share that story now because if you've grown up in the church, you've been taught about the return of Christ through many different teachers. There are many different perspectives. You probably have even watched movies. Depending on your age, it could have been Thief in the Night, Distant Thunder, Image of the Beast. Those names sound familiar? And, or, or if you're a little bit younger generation, left behind, you know, and, and we get all those movies and it might have shaped your eschatology, which would be the study of end times. And, and so you're, you're reading these texts with a presupposition of how things are going to go. Here's the problem. Many godly, passionate scholars study these things and they land differently. They land differently. And so when we go into this text today, there is, again, we've been talking about this, that when Jesus answers these two questions to the disciples, he's regularly responding with an interwoven response. Some of it is about the destruction of the temple that's going to happen in A.D. 70, and some of it's about what's going to happen at the end of time. But he's never really doing it like a hard line. He interweaves the response. So sometimes, and even in today's text, his descriptions are just talking about both occasions. So what I would suggest is that as we go into this text, let's just receive the text for what it says so that we can learn all the more. All right? So I'm not telling you what your eschatology should be, but I do believe we're going to get clarity from the text that we need to have to make sure we identify correctly who we're following. So let's go ahead and let's begin by reading in verse 23 of chapter 24. All right, so it says, At that time, if someone says to you, Look, here is the Messiah, or, no, there he is, do not believe it. For false messiahs and false prophets will appear and perform great signs and wonders to deceive, if possible, even the elect. See, I have told you ahead of time. So if anyone tells you, there he is, out in the wilderness, do not go out. Or here he is, in the inner rooms, do not believe it. Let me stop there. What's going on that he would suggest that you have to be careful that people don't begin to tell you, oh, there's Jesus, he's out there. Or here's the Messiah, he's over here. Well, apparently... As things continue to go on in the history of mankind. As he talked about at the beginning of Matthew 24. Wars and rumors of wars are going to intensify. Famines and more famines are going to grow in in frequency. And then it says, and nations will come against nations more strongly than ever before. And you're going to see all these things increase. But yet, it won't be time at that point for Christ's coming but things are gonna get really bad. And what I've discovered, and just doing life among people in general, including observations of myself, that desperate times create desperate people who are vulnerable to deception. I have found the more desperate you are in the midst of desperate times, the vulnerability to deception or false teaching intensifies. And so as we look at this, when you hear it's like Jesus is telling his followers, watch out that you don't go following after somebody saying, hey, there's a Messiah, he's out there. Or no, he's over here, or he's in here. Why would he give such a, a warning? It's because I believe people who know about the coming of the Messiah, that he is coming back, are going to get to a place where it's like, surely it's now. Things are so bad, surely it's now, that they'll begin to chase after false hopes. Meanwhile, if you know your scripture, if you know your scripture, there will be no doubt as to when the real Jesus shows up. So let me point out some things that are deceptions that he speaks to in this text so that we can make sure that for those of you listening here, at least to this message, that as we read this text, that we can make sure that we're not a part of those who become vulnerable enough to follow after a deceiver. So let me say this. When looking at when it says... Make sure you don't go out when somebody says, here's the Messiah, and go there. Or he's over here, and go there. Or if he's in this other inner room, this secret room, go there. Let me just say this. When we continue reading in this text, you're going to know that if it takes someone else to tell you that Jesus is somewhere, I can tell you it's not Jesus. All right? All right? We're going to get there, and verse 27 is going to to lead us there, but we're not going to read that yet. I'll just say right now, if it requires somebody telling you that the Messiah is over here, or he's over there, or he's in here, I can already tell you that is not the Messiah, that is not Jesus. Jesus will tell you, and we're going to get there, that he's going to come quickly, and he will be the one to provide the direct invitation. We will not be struggling to know the truth of that. There will be no doubt when that moment happens. But in verse 24, as it says there, uh, that, that there will be people, that false messiahs, false prophets, they'll perform and do even great signs and wonders to deceive, if even possible, the elect or those who are truly children of God. Well, why is it that it says again here, that even possible, it's going to be even possible, you know, if out if, if, if at all, that these Christians are going to fall after deceivers. Why is that so? And I believe it's this. There are many people here in this room, and this is a safe thing to say. Some of us know the Bible pretty well. Others of us in this room, not so much. The less you know about the Word of God the more vulnerable you are going to be to someone who shows with great power signs and wonders and speaks with authority that's impressive. So it underscores the need to know the Word of God well enough. And if you hear somebody teaching with with great power and authority and they're showing some kind of signs and wonders and they make some pretty audacious uh, claims... If you're struggling to say, I'm not sure if this lines up with Scripture, and you don't know where to go look, ask somebody to help you find the answers in the Word of God. Don't rely upon, well, that's pretty impressive, and emotionally cling to somebody that's showing some level of power and authority. Go back to the Word of God, because Jesus says they will do signs and wonders. They'll be impressive. Don't fall for it. But the only way to not fall for it is to be informed and also to be filled with the Holy Spirit who leads us into all truth, as Jesus says. Now, I will say in verse 25, when it says that, uh, that as, the, as things show up in this, the signs of the time, verse 25, Jesus says, I've already told you ahead of time these things. So that you won't fall into the temptation or the vulnerability of a deceiving teacher. So in this, I would say that he's speaking to those who are the elect, those who are Christians, truly followers of Christ, that the true follower is spiritually savvy. You know that term? You know what I mean by that? That that there's something that they're knowledgeable, they're aware, they're not easily fooled. And so I believe as Jesus is saying here, listen, I'm telling you plainly, I'm telling you plainly, there's nothing hidden. I want you to know, and so you're knowing. I'm sharing it with you that there will be leaders who will speak powerfully with signs and wonders, and they're gonna claim some great, great claims. Some of me are gonna say, they're me. It's not me. Don't follow after it. I will also say in verse 26, where it says that they go out into the desert, they're, they're there, or they're in these inner rooms. I think that highlights a common trait of a false teacher. False teachers like to gather where there is no accountability. It's just true. Because if you teach in the public forum, then you know you're speaking outright heresy. You know you're you're speaking falsely. But you're using your persuasive abilities to cause people to follow after you. You're going to move from the public forum to the private forums. And people will follow you there. How else do you explain what happened with those who followed after Jim Jones? Any of you aware of that name? In the 1980s, a powerful preacher. Was speaking and started in Indianapolis area, then moved to California. As the heat got a little strong in Indianapolis, people were questioning the way he was taught. Many pastors with great authority and 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 reputation were saying he's the real deal, and people were like, "Oh, this is really good." But then he started saying some strange things. So then he moved denominations. He went from Assembly of God to. Uh, disciple of Christ and then found out that they weren't accepting of him either so he goes to California and then things got a little hot there with the public forum uh, and the papers and so what do you do? In order for us to truly be able to teach as God would have us to teach, let's go to the country of Guyana and create our own little town. And a thousand people went with him. They uprooted from the United States and then went there. The story of Jim Jones is fascinating. He came to Christ through a legitimate, what you would say, that's a gospel message he received. He grew up in a gospel-oriented church. He was taught scripture very well. But somewhere along the line, he became all about himself. And where did he go? He moved from place to place, and then ultimately, I've got to go somewhere where nobody will question my authority. And for those of you who are younger that don't know Jim Jones's story, he ended up causing these people to follow after him so much that they saw him as the son of God himself, and then he told them to drink of a drink that would kill them, and they all drank it. And over 900 people went to their death. It's a sad story. But unfortunately, it was rooted in its initial stages in the gospel movement of the church. And yet it moved into falsehood. How in the world could people go there? Well, here's what happened. He was the only person that was allowed to interpret the scripture. There's a sign right there of cultic leadership. I am not the sole interpreter in this room. In fact, it's a commonplace experience that people will question here in this room, like as we're reading scripture, to try to apply together. Are we really accurately teaching well? And that is an important part of being the church, that we make sure that we're rightly dividing the word of truth. Our elders, our staff, regularly we talk about what's being taught, making sure we're staying true to the word of God, because we're not the final authority. The word of God is, and God himself And Jim Jones would not have let anybody else question his authority. More recently, in the 1990s, David Koresh followed a similar pattern. Got saved through a Southern Baptist ministry. Then got involved with with a church that was nearby. And as he was beginning to teach uh, various things in that church, the church kind of distanced themselves. So he found a home with with the Branch Davidians. And then he ends up doing a coup to the leader that was leading at the time of the Branch Davidians. And then he took over and guess what? He became the sole interpreter of scripture. And the way he led was that he led in such a way. And his name wasn't originally David Koresh. He took on names that would mean something from out of the Bible to say prophetically he is the new lamb of God. And that every woman who came into that community were to become his bride. He took the scriptures out of Ephesians 5 where Jesus says the church is my bride. And he made it his literal experience. And women had to give of themselves to him. Husbands had to give up their wives. They even had to give up some of their young, older uh, teenagers to him. How is this even possible? They're using the same Bible. Well, what happens is, if you don't know the Word of God, and you're not studying, and you're not questioning what you're hearing by the Word of God, then you are going to be vulnerable to deceit. And deception. And so how is it that Jesus says that even, that some of these messiahs are going to come, and they're going to teach with even power and authority, and even do some signs and wonders. And they're going to deceive a lot of people. We've got to be careful. Because as things get more and more difficult in society, and we become more desperate for Jesus to return, because how can the world become more evil than it already is. That we don't become susceptible to false teachers that will lead us astray. Let's continue reading in verse 27, because I think it's really important. The the most important way that we can avoid following a false Messiah is knowing exactly what Jesus says his return will look like. And if you know what his return will look like, then you won't be deceived. So let's look, starting in verse 27. Verse 27. It says, for as lightning that comes from the east is visible even in the west, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. Wherever there is a carcass, there the vultures will gather. Immediately after the distress of those days, the sun will be darkened, the moon will not give its light, and the stars will fall from the sky, and the heavenly bodies will be shaken. Then will appear the sign of the Son of Man in heaven. And then all the peoples of the earth will mourn when they see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. And he will send his angels with a loud trumpet call. And they will gather his elect from the four winds, from one end of the heavens to the other. Let me stop there. So basically what Jesus says here in this text is that he will return, and it will be no doubt that it's him. And there will be no doubt for not only believers, but also unbelievers. It says here plainly in the text that there will be many that will mourn upon his sight of coming into their view. And then there will be many that will be collected in great joy. So there will be no doubt That it is him. People won't struggle for who that is. They will know indeed this is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. In fact, it says here that in verse 28, this moment is going to be so significant, it's going to be filled with a lot of calamity around it. That's where that whole idea of that where there's a carcass, there will be vultures. It's found in verse 28. So where there's carcass, there'll be vultures, which is a statement of saying... That where there is wickedness or corrupted flesh, there will be judgment. And the mere showing up of the Son of God will bring judgment to those who have rejected him. And it will bring salvations to those who have received him. So you have this statement that it's going to bring incredible calamity. In fact, within this, it it draws upon a text from out of Isaiah, chapter 34, but it's also stated not only in Isaiah in that passage, but in three other points in Isaiah, this idea that the sun will be darkened, the moon will not give its light, and the stars will fall from the sky. People have asked, people have studied this and say, is that a literal experience a description of what's going to happen, where the sun will shine, will no longer shine, nor will the moon, and the stars will begin to fall. It's hard to tell. Here's why. When Isaiah mentions it, it's describing what's going to happen to Babylon when it becomes destroyed by God's wrath. He's going to send an army, and in the calamity is going to be so great that it will feel like the sun is darkened, so is the moon, and the stars have fallen. So, it's used allegorically by Isaiah. It's also used the same way by Joel and Ezekiel and their prophecies. So, we don't know. It could become literal. It's yet to happen. But it also could be allegorical that it's describing much like what happened to Babylon. It's going to be horrific when Jesus shows up for those who do not have faith in him. It's going to be horrific. Horrific. We know that it's also in that description that A.D. 70, when the temple was destroyed, that such calamity was significant that they would even say that the sun grew dark. So did the moon stop giving its light and the stars fell when Jerusalem was completely turned over. We learned last week when Joel was speaking that there were at least 400,000 people who lost their lives, perhaps even a million which is utter devastation. So too, when the coming of Son of God happens, there will be great calamity, and there will be judgment. But what's interesting about this text is that not only will this happen the, and we'll be caught up, those of us who have faith in him will join him as he comes at that loud trumpet call and that, that lightning and that swiftness that it comes. It will be like that of a cloud rushing in. And keep in mind, it uses the term lightning. It's going to be that swift that it comes like lightning. I mean, I've shared before that there's nothing like growing up in the Midwest where I grew up where you could watch storms for a couple hours rolling in from the west to the east. And you'd watch it, and yes, even times you could watch tornadoes being formed off in the distance and still feel kind of safe. But I remember watching a storm come in and a lightning bolt hit the tree that was not far from me, and all of a sudden I'm done watching the storm. You're hightailing it inside. There was no announcement that that was about to happen. All the lightning before that was off in the distance, and then all of a sudden it happens so quick. And it was awesome, but horrific and scary. So you seek shelter in that moment. So too, when Jesus comes, it's going to happen so swiftly. That's why if somebody tells you, oh, he's over here, that's not quick enough. It's not quick enough. He's going to come, and it's going to be like a lightning bolt, and everybody's going to be aware of it. In fact, what you're going to see in this is that the whole world will respond to his coming. They will respond with grieving Because they're going to realize he is who he said he was. Or they're going to respond with joy. Because their savior and king has showed up. It describes this four winds. Which is a poetic statement about all regions of the world. The four corners. North, south, east and west. That the son of man will be beheld. By all people of the earth. Now what I would like to uh, to highlight in this moment, it says that people will be mourning when they see him. Now, why is this so? Because I believe they've heard the gospel, and they rejected it. And then he shows up, and they realize they rejected the truth. Now, how is that possible? Why do I say that? Look at what it says in verse 14 of this text. After saying that there's going to be wars and rumors of wars, there's going to be nation against nations, there's going to be famines and earthquakes, and all these things are going to be in increasing measure, but the time is not yet. And then he describes that people will turn against each other, but the time is not yet. People will leave the church, and their love for for God will grow cold, but the time is not yet. But verse 14, he says this, and this gospel of the kingdom will be preached to the whole world, And the testimony to all nations. And then the end will come. Which basically means this. If the gospel has gotten to all parts of the world. Then if they have received it. Then he is going to be received with joy when he comes. But if they have rejected it. Then there is going to be a mourning among all people in all places upon his return. So this moment will leave no doubt, not only for us as believers, but also for unbelievers. I want to conclude with one more text. So I asked you earlier to make sure that you were ready for Revelation chapter 19. It's describing the same event of Jesus coming, but it's giving a couple more descriptors. Because again, my goal here is that you've, been, you've heard enough about the teaching of Jesus Christ that you would never be fooled into chasing after a false teacher or false messiah. So let's look again. This is another statement as to what his return will look like. Verse 11 of Revelation 19. I saw heaven standing open, and there before me was a white horse, whose rider is called Faithful and True. With justice he judges and wages war. His eyes are blazing fire, and his head are, on his head are many crowns. And he has a name written on him that no one knows but he himself. He is dressed in a robe dipped in blood, and his name is the Word of God. The armies of heaven were following him, riding on white horses, dressed in fine linen, white and clean. Coming out of his mouth is a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. He will rule them with an iron scepter. He treads the winepress press of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. And on his robe and on his thigh he has his, this name written, King of Kings. And Lord of Lords. Yes, sir. Yes. And then I saw an angel standing in the sun who cried out in a loud voice to all the birds flying in the air Come and gather together for the great supper of God, so that you may eat the flesh of kings and generals and the mighty of horses and people and their riders, and the flesh of all people, free and slave, great and small. Because those who are collected, by that coming Savior, will not be there in that moment. They will be with the armies coming against them. See how this connects to what Jesus says. Jesus said that when I come, there will be like a carcass with vultures coming upon it. It will be judgment and calamity that will be a part of my return. The mere sight of me will bring judgment of the heart, which will cause people to mourn. But he says here that this judgment will be such that even the, 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 um, the birds of the air will be invited, because it's going, the battle of Armageddon will be swift, it will be decisive, and it will lead to absolute death, and there the birds will feast. This return, while beautiful for us, is horrific for the world. It's horrific for the world. And so therefore, we have to be prepared and make sure that we're not following after deceivers and false messiahs and make sure that we're following after the true messiah. And when it does happen, if you've been deceived, you will no longer be deceived anymore. But unfortunately, you'll be beholding him as one who had been fooled. So how do we take away from this? I think it's clear. The only way to avoid being the fool or being the deceived one, is to know his word, which will help us know the times. We need to know his word to know the times, so that we can see through false teachings and false invitations, so that we can know that when something is being claimed, that we can know whether it's a false claim. And that by according to verse 34, when you read that, it says this, it says that anyone whose name was not found written in the book of life will be thrown into the lake of fire. That we know, that we know that our names are written in the land's book of life. Because we trust the word. We trust the word that will stand when all else fails. Doubt will be erased, absolutely. You will not struggle. Is Jesus, when Jesus shows up, really Jesus? You will know. You will know. But will you know in fear or will you know in joyful delight? Until then, until then, we advance the gospel. We are promised that each day that we're given is not because it's another day for us to enjoy life on this earth. It's not just another day to heal broken relationships here on this earth. It's not just another day so we can go to church and worship God. It's not just another day so that we can go and serve those who are hungry and poor. It's not just another day so that we can go and, and speak to what is holy in society that needs to know that God is holy. It's not just another day to do those things. Those things are all godly. God waits another day for one reason and one reason only, so that more can come into the kingdom. Second Peter chapter 3 said that we, he is not slow as some think he is slow, but rather he waits each day before he returns because he wishes that none perish. Jesus says in Matthew 24, the reason why he doesn't come during the... The previous calamities is because he wants the whole world to hear the gospel. All people, all places. So until then, until then, we know that we're given each day to make sure we're advancing the gospel. Not only where our feet have us, but to the uttermost parts of the world. We are invested in both. Because all people in all places... Need to hear this gospel, and the Bible is very clear that when we come before Jesus face to face and we get to worship Him, face to face, it says people from every tribe, every tongue, every nation will be standing there, and that won't happen unless we are proclaiming the gospel to all places and all people. So we have work to do. That's what the church is called for, and yes we feed the poor. Yes, we minister to those around us. Yes, we heal broken relationships. We, yes, we become more holy as he is holy, but not at the cost of margin for advancing the gospel to all people in all places. Let's pray. Oh, Jesus, I cannot even fathom what it's gonna be like when you come on that horse, dressed in white, with an army of those on white horses and white robes, the saints from all generations and all people, from all places. I can't fathom that moment of being able to join that army. But Lord, I know that that day, while it's a day of celebration for some, it is also a day of grieving for you because many will mourn at the very sight of Jesus. They will have rejected him. So Lord, the fact you've given us today gives us another opportunity to advance that that gospel. So, Lord, advance it even now to those who have heard. If they don't know you, if they don't know you, would they surrender to you today so that this day is received in joy? Jesus, we want you to come back. We're excited for you to come back. And we want to be prepared for you coming back to receive this song from our hearts as ones who are anxious to join that army someday. Pray this in your name, Jesus. Amen.
0: Let's stand as we declare, even so come.
2: Longing for our King, we see, even so, come. So come, Lord Jesus,
0: come. Let's make room in our hearts, sing the song of surrender,
3: and I will make room for you to do whatever.
1: So, I don't know how, again, how well each of you may know your Bibles, but let me take you to the very end. John the Revelator's final words that were penned down, that he was guided by the Holy Spirit to to say these things. It says, and the Spirit and the Bride say, come, come Lord Jesus, come Lord Jesus. And then Jesus responds by saying, yes, I am coming soon, Amen. He is coming back, and he's coming back at a very swift moment. We will see the signs. We're given this. Jesus says, I give you these things so that you can know. Things are going to go from bad to worse. There's going to be a lot of pressure upon the church because there's going to be a lot of false teachers to come from within that are going to cause people to leave the truth. There are going to be people that are going to leave the faith that even says at the beginning of chapter 24 and their hearts are going to grow cold. And then we're told today that people are even going to go as far as to say, I'm the Messiah. Jesus makes it abundantly clear as to who he is, what his coming is going to look like so that we can know without a shadow of a doubt, it's him. And so we've given this message to you. We've given it to you. And now it's up to you to receive and how you go forward. Do you join Jesus in the mission that he has? He waits each day so that more can come to know him? Or are you going to just seize that day to take it for yourself? We can do fun things and do things for ourselves in that day, but it shouldn't be at the cost of being able to advocate for what God wants to do in somebody else's life. We join him in that mission so that was a message to the church but let me say this to those of you that walked in this room having a lot of doubt don't leave today don't leave today without discovering what the joy of salvation can bring to you Jesus wants to change your life he wants his return to be received with joy and for you to be on the victorious side that's why he waits he's waited for you he's waited for me so if you'd like to give your life to Jesus, we have people that will be in the encounter room that would be glad to pray with you, talk with you. I'll be up front as well, be glad to talk with you. And uh, we want just to make sure that you can go where this day is not something you dread, but it's a day you anticipate. Having said that, I hope I see you next week, but if not, let's trust that it's the return of Christ. Amen. Go in the peace of knowing Jesus as our Lord and Savior, the King of kings and the Lord of lords. Amen.